job. Thank you so much, um, Annabelle. Uh, why this, you know, why this passage? No, no particular reason. Um, just in the uh, the sermon generator that is my Dropbox of sermons in the past, this one kind of came up first, really. Um, but it is a fantastic, um, in, in the sense that it, it carries on from some of the things we were thinking about last week, the hope that is to come and how we live in the light of that hope. So God in his kindness, there is a link to, I think, what we were considering last week. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll look at this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these wonderful words. We thank you for the brothers and sisters who have gone before us and shown us what it is to live by faith. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would learn from them this morning. And as they ultimately look to Christ, then may we also look to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in the 19th century, Hudson Taylor went overseas to China, and he wanted to bring the good news of Jesus to as many people as he can, or as he could, who were living in China. And he took with him his family, and they arrived in 1866. Do you know, within a space of four years, he was mocked, he was attacked, he was robbed, And by 1870, three of his children had died, and then his wife, Maria. Now, at some point you think, just give up. Just go home. Or at least maybe you grow a little bit cold towards God, a little bit bitter towards God. I did this for you, Lord, and what have you done? You've taken away my children, you've taken away my wife. But standing beside the grave of his wife, he was able to say the words of Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Praise be to God. And he stayed in China and continued to offer life in Jesus. So how? How do you do that? How are you able to go through such struggles, such suffering, and still say, praise be the name of the Lord? And it's not just in the in extraordinary life, is it? Uh, or the life of a Hudson Taylor. Th- these things are true in the ordinary as well, aren't they? There, there are people in this church who, who I marvel at. For all sorts of reasons, I know they find life very tough, and yet they keep coming Sunday by Sunday. They keep serving. They don't give up. They don't give in to bitterness and self-pity. I marvel at that. How do you keep doing that? I think this chapter tells us it is by faith that we do it. Faith in the promises of God. That God, as we thought last week, will transform this world and bring everlasting life to all who trust in him. See, that kind of faith in that kind of promise can produce power and perseverance and endurance in our lives beyond what we could ever imagine possible. Faith in God's promises enables us to say the best is yet to come. There is nothing ultimately to fear and the extraordinary is possible. Three things we're going to think about. First, faith says the best is yet to come, verses 20 to 22. 
So the whole chapter takes us through the Old Testament, starting in Genesis, and it finishes with Jesus, if you read the whole chapter. And along the way, you see different characters who serve as examples of what life by faith looks to, looks like, and, and leads to. In verse 20, we're still in the book of Genesis, and we come to three heroes in some ways. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And each of them, by faith, is able to say, the best is yet to come. Have a look at verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. God, great promises to his Old Testament people that he would save them, that he would put all things right, those great promises were passed on from one generation to the next. And they were done so in the form of a blessing. Abraham blessed his son Isaac as if to say, all that God has promised me, he now promises you. And Isaac does the same with his sons, Jacob and Esau. He blesses them. All that God has promised me, he now promises you. But notice when the promises are for, in regard to their future. See, the one who believes in God's promises is looking to the future. As Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, he was saying to them, here are the promises of God. Put your faith in them and know that the best is yet to come. And that idea comes up again with Jacob himself, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. It's an odd little picture, isn't it, to, to, to pull out. Of all the things you're going to mention about Jacob's life, well, it's him leaning on his staff. Why is that? Because as Jacob dies, he takes the promises of God and he passes them on to the next generation, his grandchildren, the sons of Joseph. And what does he do? He worships. Of course he worships. He is passing on the promises. He is contemplating afresh the enormity, the wonder, the glory of God's promises. And so he worships God. The best, God's promises fulfilled, is yet to come. And that can be, and it must be, our attitude as well as we live by faith. This side of the return of Jesus, this side of death, those who truly believe in the promises of God will know that the best is yet to come. And we say that even though we have so much more than our brothers and sisters had in the Old Testament. We have seen the coming of Jesus. We have experienced adoption into his family. We know what it is to be forgiven. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And yet still there is so much more of God's promises to be fulfilled. And so we say by faith as well, the best is yet to come. I guess we definitely need that kind of faith when life is at its worst, don't we? When you feel marginalized because you follow the Lord Jesus, when you feel the loss of what you say no to as a Christian, denying yourself, you feel that loss, you need to be able to say, this isn't it. This life now isn't it. 
The best is yet to come. That's the kind of faith that can stand at the graveside of someone you love and still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. The best is yet to come. But maybe we need that kind of faith, not just when life is at its worst, but even more when life is at its best. When all is right with the world, when you're sharing your life with the man or woman of your dreams, when you couldn't feel more happy to be alive, then you need to say the best is yet to come. It's what Joseph does in verse 22. If you know the story of Joseph, then you know that it starts badly for him. He's hated by his brothers. He's sold as a slave into Egypt and ends up languishing in prison. Life at its worst. But then God intervenes. Joseph is released from prison. He's put in charge of food supplies in Egypt at a time of a great famine and saves probably most of the known world from starvation. He is then honored in Egypt and he experiences the best life has to offer. But look what Joseph says when he dies, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Again, it seems a little bit random, doesn't it? But what is Joseph doing as he is on his deathbed? He is looking forward. He looks forward to the time when God's people will leave their slavery in Egypt, when God would fulfill his promises to give them their own land, and that's where he wants to be. Well, at least that's where he wants his bones to be. It's as if he's saying to the rest of Israel, I have experienced the best life can offer, but what I really want to experience is the fulfillment of God's promises to be with God and his people. It's powerful, isn't it? See, it's one thing to say when life is at its worst, the best is yet to come. Well, yeah, you can see that, you know that. It's another thing to be able to say when life is as good as it gets, the best is still yet to come. I had a friend who used to express this kind of conviction in her own way. She recognized that on the whole, life was pretty good for her, but she was worried uh, about getting sucked into living just for the here and now. And so she took a phrase from the book of 1 Peter about how the things of this world would perish, spoil, and fade. And whenever something good was almost smothering her love for Christ, she would say to herself, perish, spoil, fade. So she'd walk past a nice house and feel drawn to it, but then say, perish, spoil, and fade. She'd walk past a nice but very expensive pair of shoes and say to herself, perish, spoil, and fade. She'd walk past a nice guy, very attractive, and and say to herself, perish, spoil, and fade. No matter how good things might be in the here and now, faith in God's promises says the best is yet to come. Secondly, faith says there is nothing to fear. In verses 23 to 31, the focus now shifts from Abraham and his descendants to one of the other great giants from the Old Testament, Moses. 
And in Moses' life, we see that faith makes us fearless. Get it twice. Verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. We get it again in verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Faith in God's promises brings a fearlessness in the face of danger. King of Egypt, Pharaoh, said all baby boys should be killed, back in Exodus chapter 1. But Moses' parents sensed that Moses was going to be used by God, and so they hid him, not fearing the consequences of breaking the king's law. And then Moses, when he was older, led God's people out of Egypt, even though it made Pharaoh furious. Faith made Moses fearless. But how does that work? How does faith in God's promises enable someone to look at suffering and death in the eye and say, I am not afraid of you? Well, the answer to that is in verse 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses was brought up in the Egyptian royal household, but by birth he belonged to the household of God, the Jews who were then slaves to Egypt. So Moses has a choice. He could have chosen to become an Egyptian prince with all the prosperity and prestige and pleasure that would have gone with that, or... He could have chosen to identify, to be the Jew that he was, and therefore become a slave. No rank, no rights, no riches, just humiliation and suffering. Reject God and his people, and Moses would have had all the treasures that life could offer. Choose God and his people, and Moses would have had all the suffering that life could offer. He chooses God. How? Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see, Moses rejected the treasures of Egypt because he valued God and the reward of his promises so much more. He considered what was on offer, he weighed up the two options, and he valued God and his promises over everything else. And so by faith, Moses was able to look at sin and all the attractiveness of life without God and say, I do not want you. I would rather choose God and suffer now than choose sin and have pleasure now. Verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. I love this verse. You know, if I was the kind of person who, who stuck up verses on walls and things, this probably would be one of those verses that I'd stick on the wall. To suffer with Christ is of greater value than to have all the treasures 
of the world and yet be without Christ. Stop and think about that for a moment. What an extraordinary thing to say. To experience torture for Christ, for the sake of Christ, is more wonderful. Wonderful is not the right word. More precious than all of the treasures the world could give you. And the moment you make that kind of value judgment, the moment you're able to say all the pleasure in the world is worthless compared to Jesus and his promises, that is the moment you have nothing to fear. Because you realize the world cannot take away from you the thing that is most precious to you. In the fourth century, I think we've talked about this guy before, John Chrysostom. Uh, He was... um, one of the leaders of the early church, and he was brought before the empress of Rome, Eudoxia. And there was a kind of coming together. John was instructed by the authorities to stop preaching the gospel. But he refused until eventually he was brought before the empress and and listened to how the conversation went. We will banish you, said the empress. You cannot banish me. For this world is my father's house, says John. But I will kill you, said the empress. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot. For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is also there. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, You can't even do that. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. That is the reaction of someone who has faith in God's promises. There is nothing to fear. Why? Because there is nothing of ultimate value that can be taken away from you. I will take away your treasures. You cannot. For my treasures are in heaven and my heart is there also. This is faith in God's promises at its most powerful. To choose suffering instead of sin. To so value God and his promises that you have nothing to fear because ultimately you have nothing you can lose. No one can take Jesus away from you. But just want to say this. Look, fearless faith doesn't mean you have to be some kind of superhuman who laughs in the face of death. You're a Peter Kay fan, the comedian Peter Kay. He did this sketch once, quite a few years ago now, about the best biscuits to dip into a cup of tea. I don't know if you dip biscuits in tea. You'll know that some are better than others. A rich tea, not even worth it. Just disappears and goes and completely nothing left. But hobnobs, Peter Kay says, like they're the SAS of the biscuit world. Dip them. And as if they say, look, dunk me again. I can take more. This doesn't hurt. Dunk me again. I can take it. Hebrews 11 is not saying we need to be the SAS of the Christian world. Persecute me, oppress me. Do it again, doesn't hurt, I don't care. No. Fearlessness is seen not so much in how you feel, but in how you act. Because look at some of the examples of fearlessness in these verses. And if you go back to the actual accounts and read what happened, you see that those involved were not unemotional in the face of these threats. No, there were moments of doubt. 
They questioned God. They were hesitant in their obedience. So God told Moses to approach Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and demand that Pharaoh let God's people go. And Moses was unsure. Lord, I don't think I can do this. I can't approach Pharaoh. This isn't me. But his fearlessness was seen not so much in how he felt, but in what he did. He obeyed God, he approached Pharaoh, and he led God's people out. Well, look at verse 29. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. You go back to that Exodus account to read about the people passing through the Red Sea. And you can stand with them on the edge of the Red Sea. They can see the army of Pharaoh approaching. How do they feel? They're not laughing in the face of death. They're doubtful. They don't want to go in. It kind of made me think of when the kids are a bit smaller, you take them to the sea, and they've never been to the sea before. They're terrified. You kind of dip their feet in, and their kind of feet go horizontal. They don't want to put their feet in. That was like the people of Israel on the edge of, of the Red Sea. As God held back the sea. Didn't want to go in. But despite their doubts, they stepped forward. They walked through. See, fearlessness isn't so much seen in how we feel, but how we act. We're not all going to be like John Chrysostom. We're not all going to be the SAS of the Christian world. We're not always going to feel fearless, but we can act in a fearless way. Every time we choose obedience to Christ and the suffering that goes with that, rather than the pleasure of sin, we act fearlessly, even if we don't feel it. Faith in God's promises says there is nothing to fear. Finally, faith says the extraordinary is possible. So Hebrews 11 is like this kind of tribute to the heroes of the faith, the giants of the faith. But that doesn't mean what they did is beyond us, the ordinary Christian. You look at the list of characters in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel. Now, these six figures are known for their failures as much as for their successes. So yes, Gideon had some great victories, but his life ended with him worshipping an idol. Barak won a great victory for God, but not before he'd refused to fight. Samson, successful in war, not so successful when it came to women and self-control. Jephthah, great war hero, but lousy dad. He had a quick tongue and a slow mind, and that led to the death of his daughter. David, two words, adulterer, murderer. Samuel, great leader, but he couldn't control his family. You see, they all had their faults. You can read about them in the Old Testament. They're all like you and me, struggling with obedience. That is not to excuse their sin, but it does put them on the same level as us, I think. And the point is, you don't have to be a spiritual superhero to live by faith. Living by faith is what the ordinary Christian does. But when the ordinary live by faith, they come to realize that the extraordinary is possible. Faith gives courage to accomplish extraordinary things. Verses 33 to 35. 
and to endure extraordinary suffering. Verses 36 to 38. Let me just give some quick examples. So while some accomplish great things, they conquer kingdoms, verse 33, or endure, uh, others endure great suffering. They are mocked and flogged and imprisoned, verse 36. Some enforce justice, verse 33. Others are crushed to death by stoning, verse 36. Some stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames and became mighty warriors and put armies to flight, verse 33 and 34. Others were destitute, fleeing for their lives, sawn in two and killed by the sword. I I, I know what side of the list I want to be on, but both are there, aren't they? Extraordinary accomplishments and extraordinary suffering. Faith enables you to be ready for both. Faith says the extraordinary is possible. So what does that mean for us? What will that look like in our lives? Well, I think it looks a bit like this. On the one hand, we should think, look at the extraordinary things God can do through ordinary people of faith. If he can conquer kingdoms, shut the mouths of lions, cause armies to flee through ordinary people of faith, Could he not use Redeemer Winchester and brothers and sisters at other churches in Winchester to turn the hearts of every man and woman to the Lord Jesus? Could he not do that? Could he not use the students of Winchester Christian Union to bring every student to faith on campus? If God can quench fire and enforce justice and bring back the dead through ordinary faithful believers... Could he not work through us to quench the power of sin in our lives? Could he not work through us to overcome the injustices in our country? Of course he can. Faith says the extraordinary is possible, so we act. We we pray for our universities and for our neighborhoods. We pray for our workplaces and our city. We invite friends. We fight against sin. We look to right the wrongs that we see around us. Because on the one hand, we should think, look what extraordinary things God can do through ordinary people of faith. But on the other hand, we should think, look at what extraordinary suffering can be endured by ordinary people of faith. You may not think it now, but faith in God's promises means it is possible to face your greatest fear, your worst nightmare, whatever that might be, prolonged and and, and unimaginable suffering. And it is possible to face that and come out at the other end, still saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. Faith says the extraordinary is possible, whether that's extraordinary achievements or extraordinary endurance. But just as we finish, how do you grow that faith? How do we have a faith that says the best is yet to come, There is nothing to fear. The extraordinary is possible. Do you look within? Do you try and conjure it up? No, you look to Jesus. If you've got a Bible, just look on to chapter 12 and verse 1. The writer says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The one who gives us that faith and the one who grows that faith. See, we have something so much better 
than those Old Testament believers had. They saw God's promises dimly and from afar. But we, we have Jesus, the fulfillment, the guarantor of every single one of God's promises. It is Jesus who fuels this faith for us. And so we have more reasons for faith than Abraham, who left everything to follow God. Than Moses, who chose God and slavery instead of Egypt and royalty. Than those who were sawn in two or killed by the sword. We have more reason to trust God than they did. It is Jesus who fuels our faith. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, then we will discover a faith that enables us to say the best is yet to come. There is nothing to fear and the extraordinary is possible. Moment of quiet, I'm gonna pray. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Heavenly Father, that simply is our prayer, that you would help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, to know him, to treasure him, to establish him as Lord of our hearts, to obey him, to trust his word. Father, and as we have our eyes fixed upon your son and therefore upon you, then would you perfect our faith? Would you grow it? And would you enable us to be those who believe deep down that the best is yet to come, who understand that ultimately there is nothing to fear and who live with the conviction that the extraordinary is possible. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.